Hello and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford. Welcome to the third and final episode in our series on the world after coronavirus. Over the last few episodes, we've talked about the economy and the defense budget, but it's the topic of great power politics, particularly the rise of China, that's been getting the most discussion in recent months. China's response to the pandemic has been widely viewed as more effective than America's, leading many to question whether our lackluster response highlights a declining American state or whether just democracies in general have done more poorly than autocracies in responding to the virus. The coronavirus has also prompted a new wave of anti-Chinese actions from the Trump administration, whether it's referring to COVID-19 as the China virus or pulling out of the World Health Organization, the White House's strategy appears to be to avoid blame by pinning the virus on China. It's wag the dog, pandemic style. So joining me today to discuss US-China relations, what the coronavirus can tell us about power, and whether we're headed into a conflict with China is Josh Schifferinson. Josh is an assistant professor of international affairs at Boston University. Welcome back to Power Problems, Josh. Thanks, Emma. It's wonderful to be here and be back. Yeah, so you joined us a little over a year ago to talk about great power politics um, right about the time your book came out. Um, And I think we can all agree that a lot has changed since that time. Um, So I guess let's just start with, you know, are the U.S. and China in a worse place than they were a year ago? Um, From your point of view, what's changed? Well, I, I, it's hard to say they're in a worse place than a year ago. I, I think what has happened over the last year is some of the underlying tensions and fissures between U.S. between the U.S. and China have really come to the surface. They've been made much more overt. They've been brought into sharper relief. And insofar as public tensions are worse than private ones, uh, then maybe we're in a worse position. And certainly. Uh, COVID, coronavirus, and the economic and geostrategic fallout from that is exacerbating problems. I, I have a hard time saying worse or better. Let me just say that the tensions are more overt and they're, and the rhetoric is much sharper. That does seem to be uh, sort of a feature at the moment is the rhetoric has got really bad on both sides. You know, we've got um, Chinese officials sending out tweets talking about, you know, how terrible the U.S. government is. We've got um, the Trump administration, as I I said in the intro, repeatedly referring to this as a, a sort of a China virus and trying to pin the blame on Beijing so that they don't have to sort of take any account for their for their own failures. And it just seems like we've we've entered a phase of relations where both sides kind of believe that they can deflect from their own problems by focusing on the other side. I I think that's 100% uh, right. And and by the way, I don't think this is just about a coronavirus response. I think in general, uh, US and Chinese leaders have found political reasons of their own, both related to and separate from coronavirus, for really exacerbating tensions. I think on the U.S. side, this really helps justify, uh, it, it gives the U.S. a sense of international purpose, which I think Trump wants for because of, his act, because of accusations of drifting leadership. The Democrats want to uh, hang around the neck of the Trump administration. And I'm not a China expert, but I could imagine numerous reasons why a new generation of foreign policymakers and uh, increasingly nationalistic elites in the PRC are turning to international tensions to mobilize support. So I think this is a perfect storm of uh, elite opinion. 
Yeah, I mean, it seems to be that the coronavirus is more a uh, sort of a scapegoat than anything else. Um, so a lot of people are implying that declining U.S.-China relations are the result of the coronavirus. Um, you know, no, putting aside all the conspiracy theories about it was grown in a Chinese lab, and you know that experts have basically said aren't aren't um, even remotely reasonable. Um, but there there seems to be. Um, I think a perception on the part of a lot of elites in Washington that the um, that the coronavirus um, is sort of the last straw. You know, the relations have been getting worse with Beijing for quite some time, and that this is sort of the the, the last straw. And now we're going to engage in a more confrontational relationship. Yeah, I, I think I think your point is very well taken. You know, it's it, it, it's the straw that broke the camel's back. But but I yeah, but I also want to build on that point because I think the coronavirus is really much more uh, symbolic and not itself causal, right? In Mark Trackenberg's wonderful book, A Constructed Peace, he has a chapter on the ultimate collapse of the U.S.-Soviet relations called Crossing the Rubicon. And I, and I think that's exactly right. It, you, know, you could do a similar analogy here, where if we didn't have the coronavirus, it would have been something else that finally broke U.S.-Chinese relations, which, let's face it, we're not in a good place even beforehand. We, we of course, had the decoupling of the economies. We had uh, increasing militarization in and around East Asia, where both parties, in my opinion, have enough blame to go around. You have growing political and nationalistic rhetoric on both sides. So coronavirus hit, and it, it, but, it, but it's a little bit like uh, you know, during the Vietnam War, we used to talk about play coups, a streetcar would come around again. And I think we're in a very similar situation with this. If it wasn't coronavirus, it would be something else. Yeah, so you would think this was basically inevitable that, um, you know, for structural reasons that we were basically headed for this. Yeah, I mean, I, it's very unclear to me how much of this is structural, how much this is political elites, because I think there's a lot of, uh, I'm going to use the term groupthink, and that's maybe too strong of a term, but there's a lot of kind of received wisdom in both the U.S. foreign policy-making establishment and the Chinese foreign policy-making establishment over what the other side is, does, and looks like. And I think uh, at a time when the, the balance of power, the distribution of power was shifting, uh, that overlaid some pre-existing tendencies and has contributed to this problem. I, I, I don't think it was bound to be in conflict. I think because there's large ocean barriers between the two states, they have long uh, had economic ties together. It's not clear either side would benefit from increased geopolitical tensions in, in, in security terms in any way, that this is a structural conflict. But I do think that structure and agency intersect here with coronavirus, just you know the, the cherry on top. Well, I, I want to dig down a little further on that that structural question, um, sure. because the, the other thing that's been coming up a lot is the question of whether um, coronavirus has been highlighting structural weaknesses or strengths. I mean, so the basic story, right, is that the, the U.S. Um, has done really badly. And that highlights not just that the Trump administration is, is feckless, but that we have structural weaknesses. The Chinese have done a lot better. And people are talking about sort of the strengths of the authoritarian model. Um, and so, you know, your own research background is sort of in the rise and fall of great powers. And I'm, I'm wondering what you think. Ca can we actually infer much from the response to coronavirus? No. Uh, you know, in, in, I'll, I'll, I'll draw a really bad analogy. You know, in the 1930s, we, we, we spoke about the effectiveness of autocracies of communism meeting the challenges of modern times, right? This was obviously a response to the combination of World War I and the following Great Depression. And everyone thought autocracies, fascism was the wave of the future. 
And that clearly didn't pan out very well. Uh, thankfully so, by the way, I should add. Um, when we talk about the Chinese response to the coronavirus, we should be very clear what we're talking about. China was more effective at the, than the United States at suppressing the initial wave of inf infections. And it did so, and I want to emphasize two points there. It did so at massive violations of what we would regard as necessary civil liberties and civil rights. So if you want to argue effectiveness, what we're really saying is they were more effective at combating a health issue by taking it by, by sacrificing other things of interest in the first place. And then the second place, we want to emphasize it's the first wave. We still do not know how this pandemic will shake out. Uh, I, I, it is clear that the U.S. has not done a very good or effective job at managing the health aspects of coronavirus in the first wave. Whether it will prove more effective in the long term, whether China will prove more effective in the long term, I, I, I am... I am reasonably convinced that at a time such as now, when there is a massive global health emergency, no country will have will per, will be seen as performing "quote unquote" well. It'll be how poorly did they do, and at what cost? Uh, yeah, if we exempt New Zealand, I think, which appears to be a, a very special case because they're so far away from everybody. But I, I think it, that's it a turns really out point. isolated, you know, wealthy and well-educated countries that can close borders pretty easily can manage this pretty well. <laughs> If you look at the data, though, you're right. I mean, China has had cases ticking back up. Um, just a factoid I saw a few days ago, um, you know, as Florida reopened Disney World, um, you know, where there are like 450,000 coronavirus cases in the state, Hong Kong Disneyland was shut down again because there were 42 cases in Hong Kong. And so they are they are perhaps taking more aggressive steps, but the um, the, the cases numbers are still ticking up again. So it's, it, we really can't say that they sort of handled coronavirus and it's now gone. Yeah, they, they, they the uh, many other countries have taken more aggressive stances to combat coronavirus. It has caused the public health crisis to be shorter in immediacy, and it has come at other it has come at other sacrifices. It's not better or worse; it's just different, and it's a question of what one is willing to sacrifice. Is it indicative, though, of uh, you know, from my point of view, I sort of look at it and say, well, it's indicative of an America where our policy apparatus is very good at doing certain things. Um, you know, having a large military, for example, right. it's not particularly good at handling unconventional crises or unconventional threats. That's correct. I mean, the the U.S. government has traditionally, longstanding, not been designed to be highly regulatory in a European uh, sense or in a, in a deep state sense, as President Trump often uh, comments upon. You know, think think about it in this term. We did not, you know, we could talk about the 9-11 attacks as a failure of internal governance as well. And we have the 9-11 Commission Report, right? And what does that show? It shows at the most macro level that the U.S. government doesn't regulate what goes on inside its borders terribly well at the federal level. We defer quite heavily to the states. And we see the consequences of that for better and for worse uh, with the varied responses to the coronavirus. So um, let's, I guess, move on from coronavirus, because, as, as you say, so much is yet to be determined on that front. Like um, the French Revolution. <laughs> yes, exactly. We're still working out what's going on there. Um, but I think the, the question of um, sort of U.S.-China relations has, has become an issue more broadly. There's been a lot of other developments. Um, I assume you probably saw Mike Pompeo's speech a couple of weeks back. Um, I did. 
I, I particularly enjoyed the description of, of one commenter on Twitter, which was it was an orgy of misplaced Cold War nostalgia. And so um, so I wanted to, to talk to you, I guess, about that idea that the Trump administration seems to be trying to replay the Cold War. Um, and, and that seems to be what they, they view the U.S.-China relationship as. I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I think I'll make two points here. Number one, uh, U.S. policymakers in the Trump administration and beyond have really just adopted a Cold War mindset on this thing. And, and, and I'll go further. They haven't just adopted a Cold War mindset. They are trying to create a Cold War so they can apply that mindset. And I would argue it is not just the Trump administration. The Biden administration from uh, public declarations uh, seems to be, if anything, more hawkish or as hawkish on China than the Trump as the Trump administration. After all, we remember that famous Biden campaign ad where he castigates President Trump for not being harsh enough on China in the early stages of the coronavirus outbreak. Not, you know, I want to move on from coronavirus as well as just an example of this kind of burgeoning D.C. consensus that China is to be treated like the Soviet Union or like a new Soviet Union. And I think this is, frankly, irresponsible. I do not think the data supports this argument. I think it is misguided. And above all, which no policymaker is able to answer at this point, and in this case, I'm going to call it magical realism, is if one begins a new Cold War, where does that go? We know how the last one ended, but we don't really appreciate, or at least the policymaking establishment doesn't seem to appreciate how much contingency went into the end of the Cold War, the prior Cold War, as it evolved. American policymakers now, both the left and the right, seem to believe that if the U.S. just competes hard enough, never mind that people don't define what competition means, that if the U.S. just competes hard enough, that China will surrender, will fall, will implode. You know, It's kind of unclear, that causal process. It goes into this magical box where you know, the fairies are dancing or gremlins are doing their thing. And then out comes another American victory. And when you ask the follow on question, what if you give a war and you a cold war and you lose? They kind of just stare at you. Not only is your observation that there is a new cold war mindset uh, emerging, it is irresponsible and it is untethered from strategic reality, in my opinion. You know, I, I think the point of agency is is a really good one. Um, and you know, it's one of the um, the cases that I've always just found most fascinating is the the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, you know, and uh, Marie uh, Mary Elise Surratt has, has done some really great work on this. She and has. I have I have just been fascinated. You know, when I read her work to find out that basically the reason why the the border guards, the night the wall came down, the reason why the border guards didn't open fire was because one guy, a border guard, decided, hey, maybe I'll just let them through the border. And that's basically the reason the wall came down. And you can point to a dozen other examples through the Cold War um, where contingency and agency really made a difference. It doesn't mean it was necessarily, you know, it, it didn't cause everything. Structural factors were important too. Um, but as you say, you, you can't necessarily assume that if you get in this kind of competition with China, um, that the U.S. is, is necessarily going to come out on top just because we don't know what's coming down the pipe. Right. So, so, so there are two different issues there. Right. Number one is there's not it's not clear that one can manage uh, an intense superpower competition like another Cold War in peaceful ways. We know how the first one went. But as you just pointed out, there's lots of contingency. So one question is, can you manage it peacefully along the way? 
Then the second question is, even if the process is peaceful, is the ultimate result what you want it to be? And and in that regard, I think it's worth pointing out that people like Mary, people like Jeffrey Engel, people uh, like Melvin Leffler, people like Mark Trachtenberg have shown compellingly that no one really knew, even into the 1980s, how this darn Cold War competition was going to go. Indeed, people were preparing for continued Cold War competition with the Soviet Union into the 21st century. And so before the American policymaking establishment, and I'm harping on the American policymaking establishment since I don't speak to the Chinese foreign policymaking establishment, although I would certainly harp on it on that side as well, uh, I, I would just say that the American foreign policymaking establishment doesn't seem to want to grapple with the reality of what new Cold War really would entail. They're trying to give a party, and it's not clear they actually want the party they're going to get. So I want to follow up sort of on on two things here. The first one is um, I I want to just start with the idea of sort of structural strengths and weaknesses, because I feel like a lot of this discussion is basically people looking at the U.S. and looking at China um, in comparative uh, sense and basically saying, well, the U.S. is in sort of a stronger position. Um, and that means that we would necess- we would probably come out on top in, in this kind of competition. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Is the U.S. in a stronger position and therefore is it likely to win, so to speak? Yeah. Well, are we in uh, are we in a stronger position as people assume when it comes to China? Because I think there's a lot of sort of talk, particularly in D.C., that if we just sort of turn the might of the U.S. government and turn it away from counterterrorism, we turn it towards China. Um, you know, then we're basically good to go. I mean, I, 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 it's hard to do the net assessment. Let me just offer kind of how I see what I see as the offsetting strengths and weaknesses. I mean, obviously, the U.S. is in a much more advantageous uh, geographic position than China, which is obviously on the Asian mainland and is ringed in by uh, capable neighbors, the North and the Southwest, and then island moats, and then uh, island competitors across offshore. Geography doesn't do China any advantages for a de- to a degree. It helps the U.S. Uh, by implication. Population-wise, obviously, China is more demographically uh, eclectic than the United. Excuse me, it's larger than the United States, but of course, it has a lower per capita GDP. That per capita GDP has been trickling upwards. So over time, it is not inconceivable that China's uh, economy will swamp the United States, even in terms of mobilizable resources. Uh, Right now, though, the U.S. seems to have more mobilizable wealth, as some people uh, like to point out. The U.S. military maintains important edges against the PRC, though, as people like the scholars at the RAND Corporation, CSBA, and beyond indicate, the advantages are not what they used to be, maybe waning in some arenas. I'm not an expert on technological and military development in that way, but it seems very plausible that the U.S. will retain some strengths and lose some areas of advantage over time. Uh, the U.S. does have a lot of allies. It's not a matter of historical legacy, and the U.S. can afford to sacrifice some in contrast to what some in D.C. seem to believe. But the flip side of it is geography does tend to drive other countries into the United States' camp more than vice versa. Um, the bottom line is I think the U.S. has important strengths. I think on the net, in terms of seeking its own security, it's in a very strong position to do just fine, even if China rises. Uh, I have a harder time, though, to go to your original question, figuring out how that relates to the U.S. ability to, quote unquote, win against the PRC. Because frankly, we now look back at the prior Cold War and say, oh, the U.S. has such and such advantages. Obviously, it was bound to win. 
Well, it wasn't obvious at the time. And so that should give us great circumspection nowadays in terms of going, well, we have A, B, and C advantages, ergo, we're going to win. Well, if we didn't know back then what advantages were going to contribute to our win, even what those advantages were, I think we should be very skeptical of claims that if the U.S. just turns its full might upon the PRC, that the U.S. will somehow dominate this competition. The U.S. can be secure despite this competition. It's not clear it can win because I don't know, I don't think anyone knows what elements are conducive to quote unquote winning against other great powers in the modern age. Never mind the point you made earlier that I don't know what winning looks like in Correct. this context. You can make some pretty good arguments that regime collapse in Moscow was perhaps not the best thing in the long run for, for the US. Um, and it went pretty okay, um, you know, in terms of, of internal domestic stability in Russia. That's right. I, 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 it's not, to, to your point, I do not know what competition with China is designed to produce. Competition by its very definition is a process. It is not clear what the outcome of that process is supposed to be. And if you were to survey folks in DC, I'm sure they would say things like, oh, it's a China that accepts the US role in the world, or it's a China that has regime change. But again, what those mean in practice, that's that's where the real meat comes in. And so I am very skeptical of these claims that the US can quote unquote win, because I don't know what winning looks like. And I don't think anyone knows what elements are conducive to winning, even if one can give a good definition. Well, one of the more interesting things about the Pompeo speech last week was that he made a, a concerted effort not just to sort of say this is a new Cold War, but also to highlight the role of ideology. Um, and rather than, you know, even pulling, as, as some people have done, saying, oh, well, China's authoritarian and it's an axis of authoritarians that's the ideological challenge. Um, Pompeo basically said, hey, they're communists again. And it's it's another ideological struggle between capitalism and, and communism. And it just seems to me like I, I don't really see this ideological frame sticking. It's just not particularly convincing. No, I, I, I think it's laughable, frankly. Uh, if Mr. Pompeo's argument would have to be the following. China got rich by being Marxist. I think that's, doesn't, that doesn't fly in the face of his own accusations of Chinese firms, keep in mind, firms, not government, stealing US intellectual property. So either his definition of Marxism is divorced from what Marxism traditionally meant, or he's just pulling this out of his uh, tuchus. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you know you can you could make arguments about Chinese state capitalism as a model, sure, um, sure. you know, the sort of the, the kleptocratic state that we see in China, but um, but none of that is communism. So I think uh, at no, the he, very least, Pompeo's ideological comparison is is a bit weak. No, you you could almost hear him crafting the speech with the Fox News septuagenarian audience in mind. With well, apologies uh, to with apologies to those listening who are over the age of seventy. Obviously, that doesn't apply to everyone. I, I think the less said about Mike Pompeo's presidential ambitions, the better. Um, of which maybe, country? <laughs> maybe, maybe that provides us with sort of a, a, a way to segue into our last topic, um, because as you mentioned briefly earlier, um, the other big outcome of the coronavirus crisis seems to be that we are far more likely to get a Biden presidency than a Trump second term. Obviously, there's a lot of time still to go to the election. Um, but right now, it looks like we're probably going to be seeing a Biden foreign policy uh, come January. Um, so I guess, you know, how do you think this is going to impact uh, U.S.-China relations? Are we going to see some improvement or is are things just going to keep getting worse? Well, I see very little indication that uh, many people on the in the Democratic foreign policy establishment, separate from the 
wholesale U.S. government foreign policy establishment. Uh, I see that the majority of those around Mr. Biden, and I want to emphasize majority because there are there are there is variation, uh, seem to be on board with the Trump administration's approach to this. We have to remember that back when Trump's national security strategy came out in late 2017. The one thing that people in the Democratic side really applauded was the declaration that there's a new era of great power competition. And if we assume that that was a sincere statement, then those people, once in office, uh, will embrace this idea of competition. Indeed, we see discussions emerging over how Biden will compete with China more effectively or how Mr. Biden will be able to uh, leverage American allies more. Never mind that American allies in the U.S. may or may not have totally simpatico interests on the Chinese question. There, I see no evidence that there is any call for defense budget cuts, a return to diplomacy with China, uh, calls for a return to the engagement strategy, whatever that meant uh, of, of the prior of prior administrations. So I think this is uh, the hemlock of the arsenal. I mean, it seems to be a question of um, methods versus motivation, right? That, the, uh, that, that many in the Democratic establishment are uh, extremely upset about the methods that Trump is using, or, or perhaps to be clear, about the incompetence with which Trump is pursuing um, competition with China, but they don't actually mind about the overall approach. They just want to do it more competently. Correct. Or, or what they define as competence. They, they want a... They want a competition with China done through multilateral means, broadly speaking, uh, emphasizing a mobile, mobilizing a coalition against the PRC, but and, and run more effectively than the Trump administration, as you said, more, more efficiently with fewer hiccups or cross-competing messages. Uh, there's no desire that I can tell uh, to walk back competition with China or avoid a competition with China. We, we, you know, we, we are in a race to the bottom when it comes to competition whether each party is trying to outflank the other and being uh, more hawkish on the PRC. Well, uh, that is not exactly a positive note to end on, but I'm afraid we've run out of time. Um, so thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back. And thanks again to our production team, Tyler Shanahan, Cecil Sherman, and Lauren Sander. Thanks to everyone for listening. Um, and if you want to continue the conversation, you can find us on Twitter at Power Problems or leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts.